welcome to this bonus episode of When Did You Know, which I'm releasing as part of National Inclusion Week 2022. This mini episode is a recording of a talk I was invited to deliver online at the University of Brighton in February 22 as part of their LGBTQ History Month celebrations. They invited me to reflect on the stories shared in my podcast before taking questions from the audience. And so what follows is an edited recording of that speech to keep you occupied whilst I finish editing season three of When Did You Know, which will be out in a few weeks' time. If you want to learn more about National Inclusion Week, then head over to www.inclusiveemployers.co.uk to find out more. It's such a huge honour to be here today, so thank you so much for inviting me. My name is Ariel Chapman, my pronouns are he and him, and I'm an equality and diversity leader, podcaster and writer currently based in Plymouth. When did you know? When did you know that you didn't quite fit in with what the world expected of you? That your gender wasn't what you were told it should be? Or maybe it doesn't fit into one of those narrowly defined boxes at all? Or when did you know that you preferred kissing boys instead of girls? When did you know that actually someone's gender didn't define whether you were attracted to them or not? I had so many questions and it always felt weird to just ask people outright. As queer people we talk about coming out fairly regularly and we share those stories with one another. But that's just one small, significant but small moment in the whole story of our queer lives. And so, like half the world seemed to do, I started a podcast in lockdown asking people, when did you know? I didn't really want to kind of do makeup and play with horses and um, definitely not into dolls. I had younger brothers, um, so, you know, burying dolls and soldiers um, in the garden, you know, they they were all fair game. Um, Climbing trees, riding bikes. Um, I was often called a tomboy. And it went with the sportiness, but I was just sort of physically confident and active. And I think it was only when other people expressed negativity about that did I I realise that... um, Everybody probably knew that I was gay before I did. My family would always go to the movies every sort of Friday night. And um, and I was my mom wanted to go see The Birdcage. And I was like, no, I do not want to go see The Birdcage with my family. I know this is going to be a gay movie. And I don't know if that's me or not. But like, I know that's uncomfortable for me to go. And I remember watching the movie being like, okay, I think this might be my world. I was quite unusual and quite different to all the other guys that I knew in my family and at school. And my earliest memory is of knowing that I was trans. Um, It was actually, it was of knowing that I was trans and thinking to myself, this is something that I have to, that I can't tell anyone and that I have to take to the grave. And kind of pushed it aside and said to my, said, I'm like, asexual or like I I still I still like girls but I was like I but I didn't have any relationship or anything going on because I saw myself as yeah not sexual (laughs) so and probably maybe it was a defensive mechanism because I didn't want to didn't want to I like I was I didn't want to um be gay maybe watching Saved by the Bell and seeing Zach 
top topless. That was that was my shiny moment. I was like, yes, I love boys and I love everything that comes along with it. Like I don't know the expectation that it would be easier in any other community um, is sort of ridiculous and obnoxious. Um, but what there is um, is a disconnect with mainstream society because of the othering that travelers get and so what it does mean is that if your family are homophobic or you know if coming out does go badly for you or whatever the thing is you don't feel that you can go and talk to the mainstream lgbt charity the headmaster waving a, co a condom around um and then putting it on a cucumber it <sighs> it was that kiss that did it blew away my misconceptions about lads, about fancying them, that is, about wanting to be their girlfriend. Tracy was trouble with a capital T, tall, tempestuous, a truant and a tease. She cut a swathe through all the boys, discarded them like broken toys. I was 12, she was 16, and a walking, talking, living dream. I was bored with secondary school. I preferred dancing and playing the fool. On that day, she noticed me, said she'd teach me how to be a femme fatale like she was. The first lesson was kissing. Like most of my guests, I always knew I was different. I didn't really want to play football or with action men, but would rather dance around and play with my cousin's doll's house. I always knew that this wasn't right, that I was broken, and something was wrong with me because I didn't act like normal boys. But in 1999, when I was 10 years old, I knew what that difference was. Gavin and Jason on Emmerdale were caught kissing. Now, my family loved soap operas. We watched them all. And because my dad often worked late, he would record Emmerdale and watch when he got home from work, the days before catch-up TV was a thing. And so I watched that kiss repeatedly when nobody was around, rewinding that VCR tape and watching two men kiss. Watching them made me realise who I was. I still might not have had the words for it, but I saw that actually me wanting to kiss boys wasn't totally weird, that I wasn't the only boy in the world who felt like that. Will and Grace started on TV and Queer as Folk showed some quite explicit gay sex on Channel 4 and I'd watch it at night with the volume as low as possible on a tiny TV in my room. And these were my people and it looked fun. But I could never quite shake off the shame of what I was feeling. Coming out didn't go perfectly. I was bullied mercilessly at school and found myself in abusive relationships, never thinking I deserved better. I was a fat kid, a fat teenager, and I've spent most of my life in plus-sized clothes as a fat adult. And that just seemed to add to the shame. I started this show because I had all these questions and all this shame and anger and hurt, but I didn't quite realise how much listening to these other stories would help me in becoming to over, beginning to overcome that shame. 
how we all, despite coming from vastly different backgrounds, still carry shame, still remember what it felt like to feel alone, still know how it feels to find your people and still live in a world not yet ready to let us shine. I've spoken to lesbian, gay, bi and pan men, women, non-binary, trans and cisgender people from the UK, the US, Bulgaria, Hong Kong, Pakistan, Germany and Romania. I've spoken to gypsies and travellers, Eurovision stars, public health workers, poets, artists, great British Bake Off stars, drag queens, scientists, Jews, Christians, Muslims and atheists. And in spite of this diversity and these huge differences in experiences across all stories on the podcast so far, three themes are shared by all my guests in their unique queer origin stories. First, very few of us had role models growing up. What we saw on TV and in society didn't reflect who we were. LGBT people, if they were portrayed at all, are often white, non-religious, able-bodied, often conventionally attractive and play up to LGBT plus stereotypes. For example, the gay best friend trope, the gay man interested in fashion, the butch lesbian, the trans person always struggling to be accepted or having mental health issues. And until very, only very recently, we were often shown as promiscuous, dirty, something to be feared that spread disease. Every guest of colour on the podcast could not recall a time that they saw an LGBT person of colour growing up. Now, this has got slightly better over time, but still, what about LGBT plus people with visible disabilities? What about fat, gay or bi men? What about LGBT plus people of faith? In season two, I interviewed Tyler and Lolo from UK Traveller Pride and it helped me to challenge my own preconceptions about the traveller community and how welcoming they are to LGBT plus people. I realised that my expectations of homophobia came from two books I'd read about LGBT plus travellers, which only reinforced this bias. Only recently, a documentary came out exploring what it's like to be queer and a traveller and how positive it can be. But that's in 2022. Where were the stories before? Dr Sammy Lee is an academic at the University of Birmingham and grew up at roughly the same time as me, except his story took place in Hong Kong. He found friends online as the internet was beginning to take off. Online chat rooms and forums connected him to other LGBT plus people that he couldn't find easily around him. And he certainly didn't see any queer representation in mainstream culture or education at the time. He sought out people he could talk to about how he felt. Sadie Pines is a drag queen and comedian based in Los Angeles, and I found them through their podcast devoted to the Golden Girls. They accidentally found people like themselves through watching The Birdcage, through a chance encounter after being dragged to the cinema by their mum. Still, mainstream culture was pretty silent. We're lucky now we have shows such as Pose, It's a Sin and RuPaul's Drag Race. We have social media to readily connect us with other queer people. And yet, what about our schools? Where are queer stories in primary and secondary schools? Where are they in faith schools? In mainstream children's programmes and books? I grew up under Section 28, 
when it was illegal to talk about LGBT plus issues in schools. And whilst the law was repealed in 2003, nothing really changed in schools until 2019, when finally LGBT issues are covered in sex and relationships education. But we're not defined by the sex we have. What about LGBT history? What about LGBT culture? Where is that in our schools? And yes, SRE, sex and relationships education, is important. I was 19 years old when someone finally explained what HIV was. But that isn't the whole story. Guests on my show repeatedly had an absence of role models and continued to feel alone for decades because they never had any idea that other people felt like them. It would be great to say that this is a generational thing, and it has certainly got better, but younger people now still have those moments when they knew and they panicked because they couldn't see anyone else like them. And our wider society likes to pretend that it's okay with LGBT plus people, but we've all seen the transphobia online and in the media over the past few years. Wider society is okay with a sanitised image of what LGBT plus people are. White, attractive and not too queer, not too invested in blurring the lines of gender identity, still keeping us in acceptable boxes. As queer people though, we need to take responsibility for the part that we have played in sanitising what it means to be LGBT or queer. Now, I could have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder on this one, but do you know what it's like? being a fat queer man. I'm doing a lot of work at the moment on being comfortable with the word fat as more fat activists reclaim the world word. And I know that I'm at the smaller end of fat, so do not have the lived experience of people in bodies larger than mine. But my fatness has always been an issue, particularly in the gay community. I see on dating profiles constantly, no fat and no femme. I've been rejected multiple times because I do not have the washboard abs and you cannot see any hint of muscle on my soft, squidgy body. As I said, I could have a chip on my shoulder over this, but multiple guests on my show felt the same and not just limited to fatness. Guests of colour were told that their, that their skin colour was deemed unattractive as white was someone's preference. Queer male and non-binary guests told me how their campness was ridiculed or seen as embarrassing. LGBT plus people with disabilities didn't even get a look in. I'm Jewish and that brings a whole new level of challenges related to anti-Semitism with questions about my body. Asking for money and that really happened when one guy kept asking for money as, in his words, I'm Jewish so I must have lots of it. There's also the gross assumption that because I follow a faith, I must have some secret internalised homophobia. And of course, the standard blaming me for everything the Israeli government does just because I'm, gov I'm Jewish. But when do you see images of queer Jews or queer Muslims? Can you think of a time that you saw positive representation of queer people with disabilities? Racism, ableism, fatphobia, anti-Semitism and toxic masculinity exist in all parts of society and yet they seem to hurt even more when they come from people within your own community. We know what oppression feels like 
so we should do better. But instead, we've learned from our oppressors what is acceptable to them, and so we continue to perpetuate these stereotypes. In our desperate bid to be accepted, we've sanitised ourselves and toned down our queerness. Speaking with Tyler and Lolo from Traveller Pride, with Jordan from Bulgaria, with Dan from Trinidad, and many more helped put into perspective how much work we still need to do within our own community to love each other and to love ourselves in the way we want wider society to love us. Which brings me onto the final theme that was shared across all who've been on my podcast, and I mean everyone. We're all working hard at being the change we want to see. If you're hosting a podcast, then one of the biggest challenges is often finding guests and making sure that they're a truly diverse representation of our queer community. However, despite how different my guests have been, all of them are working towards righting the wrongs they experienced as young queer people in some way. Take Ben Peachy, for example. They never knew non-binary people existed until they were in their 20s. They always felt pushed to the sidelines for not fitting into the restrictive boxes that society tries to put us in. And now they've just published their first book and they travel the UK delivering diversity and inclusion training from a non-binary perspective. Nick Charles noticed that he rarely heard people who sounded like him in the media. And so he started a podcast and he's now a DJ for Gadio. He was also fed up of seeing toned, skinny white men in gay magazines, so he posed nude for attitude. Sarah Aston didn't get very good sex education at school. It consisted of the girls being told that awful things would happen to them and her headmaster putting a condom on a large cucumber in assembly. Nothing about falling in love, nothing about sex with another woman and nothing about staying safe. She's now the Sexual and Reproductive Health Commissioner for Torbay. Aunt Babaji was diagnosed with HIV in his 20s and he thought it would be a death sentence because that was all he'd have been told. Now, several decades on, he's the face of multiple HIV and sexual health campaigns. Yendrick Sigwit was fed up with constant hate online against anyone who didn't fit in with the white, Christian, heterosexual majority. So he decided to fight that hate with love and make them realise how ridiculous their attitude was. He wrote a song about it and represented Germany at the Eurovision Song Contest with that song in 2021. And sometimes that change can be more fun, like Sadie Pines wanting to celebrate their love of the Golden Girls and becoming a Golden Girls themed drag queen, that early experience of seeing the birdcage helping them to find their people. Often we've had rough starts, often we feel ready to give up. But time and again, each guest on my podcast taught me just how resilient we are and how amazing we are at being the change that we want to see. It's really easy to sit back and accept things the way they are, especially as LGBTQ plus rights have improved steadily over the past few decades. But we don't. We keep on fighting for better representation, for true equality, and to ensure that our experiences are not wasted. So why do we do this? Each person on my show could still viscerally remember what it felt like when they knew and all that came with it. Representation came up in every episode because without it, that moment when you know that you're different feels even more lonely. 
And so each of us have committed to changing that up. We know what it's like. We know what it felt like to think that the whole world is watching and judging you. And so speaking on a podcast, embracing your love for drag, changing sexual health provision, or just going out and being yourself in the world will lessen that for someone else. Then we go out and do it. I question why we do this. And to be honest, we don't really have a choice. It's something deep inside all queer people to want to make things better no matter how small and no matter how grand the change. We just want to make things a little bit better for the next generation. So what do cucumbers, Emmerdale and the internet all have in common? What do the birdcage, a sewing machine, the Spice Girls, Eurovision and Save by the Bell tell us about being queer? They tell us that our origin stories, those moments that make us sit up and go, that's me, stay with us. They shape us and they bind us to each other. This talk is all about origin stories because those first few moments of realisation are the moments that change the course of our lives. It's no surprise that so many queer people go on to change the world somehow. I'm not really a fan of superhero films, sorry, but um, even I know that superheroes have origin stories. The moments that create the hero, that give them their purpose. Well, queer people are heroes. Every single one of us, because our origin stories plant inside us that need to fight. That desire for a better world that smashes down gender stereotypes, destroys the patriarchy, pulls apart toxic masculinity and celebrates humans for simply being humans in their weird, fun, annoying, infuriating queer ways. And before I finish, because that would be an ideal point to end on, I wanted to share one final story in this virtual space. A huge part of Sarah Aston's story was the kindness shown to her by a teacher when she was in school in the 90s. Sarah was being humiliated by the other girls in PE and the PE teacher, Miss Birch, spoke privately with Sarah and told her it would get better, that she could talk to her about what was going on and this was at a time when that kindness was illegal under Section 28. That stayed with Sarah and 30 years on, Miss Birch heard Sarah's story on the podcast through the magic and through the magic of the internet, I put them in touch with each other. Miss Birch hadn't ever really thought about it much, although she is now married to her wife and so understood how important that conversation could have been for a young Sarah. And Sarah finally got to thank her for what she did. This wasn't a universal experience, but it was one I could relate to. Growing up under Section 28, many teachers were afraid to talk to me, to intervene, to stop the abuse. But I know a few that did, and as I've grown up, I've tried to thank them for what they did. They broke the law to stand up for what was right, to protect a young person in their care. Their actions were not always dramatic, sometimes just making an excuse for me so I didn't have to suffer through PE, or sometimes just an encouraging smile when I stood up for myself. Sometimes they were dramatic, and they risked their careers to give me information and guidance I needed. Regardless of how big or small the gesture was, the impact was always huge. If you're watching this as an ally and you worry that you aren't doing enough, or you don't know where to begin, 
Know that just being here, listening to our stories and committing to something, big or small, is enough. Those small acts of courageous love could be the things that change a queer person's life. And sometimes we need you to shout, make a big move and do the brave thing because as awesome as it is to be the change we want to see, it's exhausting. And it would be good to hand over some of that fight to other people with a bit more power than us. And so here were some of our queer origin stories and the lessons I've learned from them. These are the stories that made us, but they are not the stories that define us. Mm-hmm.